The following is a sermon by Pastor Todd Dykstra, teaching pastor of Maranatha Bible Church of Comstock Park, Michigan. For more information, go to mbcmi.org. We do have eight baptisms today, and I, I want to um, take some time to, to kind of set the stage for that. And so, uh, if you would please open in your Bibles to John chapter 3. John chapter 3. I think I say this often, this is one of the best Sundays of the year. We say that at Christmas and we say that at Easter. This is truly one of the best Sundays as we're about to hear from eight people who are trophies of God's grace. Eight people who will in just a short time give public testimony of the grace of God in their life and Each one of these testimonies is unique, each one of them is significant, each one of them is going to to tell us about the amazing grace of God in their life, and it's evidence that that God still does miracles. It's the miracle of new birth, a divine miracle where God makes those who are spiritually dead spiritually alive. And this is what baptism is a picture of. Baptism itself does not do that. Baptism saves nobody. All that happens in baptism is really you get wet. It doesn't save you. It doesn't do anything to bring you closer to God. But it is an act of obedience to God, which illustrates and symbolizes for us what has taken place in Christ and in salvation. As a person goes under the water, it's a symbol of the washing away of their old life. As they come up out of the water, it's a symbol of their new life in Christ. And so it's an incredible picture, marvelous picture of grace. I love what one writer says about baptism. He says, baptism is a solemn reminder to the individual and to all who observe that there is no turning come to Christ. I've been transformed. My sin has been forgiven. I've been made new in Him, and my life is new, and there is now no turning back. It symbolizes the incredible work of God in someone's life, and it's incredibly important for us to understand this ordinance because there's only two, only two ordinances that God has given the church. Those are, of course, the Lord's Supper where we remember his death, we remember his sacrifice for us, we remember on a regular basis the fact that Christ gave himself for us so that we could live. We do that here monthly to remind ourselves of the cross. And then there is baptism. That reminder of our union with the Lord Jesus Christ, that reminder of our identification with His church. And we celebrate that here on a regular basis because it is an act of obedience. In fact, we say it is one of the first steps of obedience in the life of a Christian. Baptism by immersion in the water according to the Scripture. In fact, we might even say that baptism is really the defining mark of being a Christian. If there's one symbol, if there's one entity that really communicates what it means to know Christ or what it means to be saved by Christ, it is this, baptism. In fact, we see a pattern in Scripture. A person is saved, they're baptized. A person is saved, they're baptized. Saved, baptized, saved, baptized. That is the pattern that is consistent all throughout the New Testament. 
In fact, the early church Christians were actually known as the baptized ones. This is what they were referred to because baptism and salvation are inseparably linked in Scripture. And so a person came to Christ. One of the first steps of their obedience then was baptism, symbolizing that remarkable reality. For just a few moments this morning, I want to take you to John chapter 3. Because John chapter 3 describes for us the spiritual reality behind the physical symbol of baptism. It is John chapter 3 which describes for us this new birth, this, this entity of being born again, this miracle of regeneration. You will likely remember that in John chapter 3, Jesus has an encounter with a man by the name of Nicodemus. Nicodemus is a Pharisee. And he thought he was right with God. He thought he was in a right relationship with God. And he about, is about to have this encounter with Jesus Christ that confronts his false assurance and exposes his deep need of a new birth. It's a marvelous account of what it means to truly be born again. And what's unique about these first eight verses of chapter 3 is it's not just Jesus speaking to Nicodemus. He's speaking to us as well. He's speaking to you. He's speaking to me. Nicodemus was not a special case. Nicodemus was not the only individual who needed to be born again. Every single person has this great need. If you're here today and you do not know Jesus Christ, you are Nicodemus. And you must be born again. As we who have trusted Christ have been born again. So let's read together John chapter 3, verses 1 to 8. Just follow along as I read these first eight verses. John writes, Now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you have come from God as a teacher, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Jesus answered and said to him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. And Jesus, uh, Nicodemus said to him, How can a man... Be born when he is old. He cannot enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born, can he? And Jesus answered, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born, born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter into the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Do not be amazed that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear the sound of it, but do not know where it comes from and where it is going. So is everyone who is born of the Spirit. A lot of people today say they're born again. In fact, if you polled most people in America, I would assume that most of them might, might say that they've been born again. They're a born-again Christian, which is really a redundant phrase. Many people thinking that because they had a, made a personal commitment to Christ or walked an aisle or prayed a prayer or asked Jesus into their heart when they were four that they're born again. <clears throat> what does this mean? What does it really mean to be born again? And how is baptism a picture of this? I want to give you this morning two truths that uncover both the glory and the wonder of the new birth. Two 
truths that will really, I hope, uh, expose for us both the glory and the wonder of the new birth. So let's look at these together. We'll just take just a few moments to do this. Number one, the first truth that really helps us here is the need, the need for the new birth. There is a need, and as I said previously, your greatest need here this morning without Christ is you must be born again. You have an incredible need, and we're going to see that here in these verses. Look at verse 1. Let's just walk through this together. Now, there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. We don't know a lot about Nicodemus. He's only mentioned by name here in John chapter 3. And in fact, of the whole Gospel of John, he's only mentioned here in chapter 3, chapter 7, and chapter 19. And in chapter 19, he is seen with a man by the name of Joseph of Arimathea taking the body of Christ off the cross and preparing it for burial. So we know that at some point between John chapter 3 and John chapter 19, Nicodemus came to be born again. But not here. Beyond that, we don't know a lot about him. His name, Nicodemus, means conqueror of the people. Nike Demas. Conqueror. He is the conqueror of the people. And tradition says that he came from an aristocratic family, from an upper crust of nobility. He was an educated man. In fact, look down at verse 10. It says that he is the teacher of Israel. Jesus answered and said to him, Are you the teacher of Israel and do not understand these things? He may have been the best teacher in Israel, perhaps the greatest teacher in Israel. He was a man who was high up in Judaism. And we want to notice a couple specific things from verse 1. He was a Pharisee. He was a Pharisee. He was the legalist of the day. He was of the 6,000 men who identified themselves in that day as Pharisees. They were that group of people who were those who were keeping the Sabbath, keeping the Mosaic law, they were the religious box checkers, thinking that their way to God was made possible by their ritualistic keeping of the Mosaic law. Only 6% of the Jewish nation was devout enough to be a Pharisee. He's a Pharisee. And second thing we notice about him in verse 1 is that he is a ruler of the Jews. Or if you have an NIV, it says he is a member of the Jewish ruling council. That was the Sanhedrin, made up of 70 men, both Pharisees and Sadducees, who were kind of the ruling body, the governing body of the Jewish nation. They were kind of like Congress. They, they brought together, they came together, they made decisions. Well, you're supposed to make decisions for a country. This was the group. They were the ruling class. In other words, put all that together, he was the elite of the elite. He was the cream of the crop. He had arrived religiously. He was at the height of his career. He was intellectually superior. He was politically superior. He was religiously superior. And he occupied the highest position in Jewish society. If there was anyone who had arrived and anyone who thought that they had made their way right with God, it was this man, Nicodemus. He thought he was in. <clears throat> he checked every box. He had ascended to the height of his career. He thought he had a spot reserved in heaven for him because of his devout adherence to the law of Moses. And that house of cards is about to come crashing down. 
And everything that Nicodemus was placing his hope and his confidence in is about to be shattered. The foundation of his religious system is about to come crashing down, and Jesus is about to expose him as completely bankrupt spiritually. Notice verse 2. This man came to Jesus by night. Now stop right there. By night. Why, why by night? A couple of reasons possibly why he came at night. Possibly because he knew the crowds would just be less. There would be less people there, less people around to, to have to fight, to navigate, to get to Jesus. Perhaps that's one possibility. But we have to imagine that there was certainly an aspect of fear in Nicodemus' heart. In fact, he knows that his association with Christ, if found out, would seriously jeopardize his reputation and put him at risk in his role in the Sanhedrin and as a Pharisee. So he comes at night. And he says to him, verse 2, Rabbi, teacher, We know that you have come from God as a teacher, for for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Now, remember what's just taken place. In John chapter 2, what's just happened? It's Christ's first sign, his first miracle of changing water into wine. And, And word has spread that the Messiah, though they deny that he is that, has performed a sign. And word is spreading, and perhaps he was even there. Perhaps he had been around people who were there. He had heard about this incredible sign of transforming water into wine. And and Nicodemus wants to know more about this Christ. So here's this religious, legalistic, zealous Nicodemus who thinks that he's done everything he needs to do to get himself to God... And he's on this undercover, clandestine mission at night to talk to Jesus. And unbeknownst to him, the foundation of his entire religious system is about to be shaken and rocked and confronted with his deep need. Now notice verse 3. I love what Jesus does here. Jesus answered and said to him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. This is an absolutely shocking statement. In fact, so shocking is it that Jesus repeats it three times. Notice verse 5. He says, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter into the kingdom of God. And then notice verse 7. You must be born again. It's a shocking statement. Jesus repeats it three times to the self-righteous Pharisee. And he says, you must be. Your greatest need is for you to be born again. And if you're not, Jesus says, you cannot see and will not see the kingdom of God. In other words, you don't go to heaven. You will not be saved. You will not be part of God's family. You will not enter into a lasting relationship with me. You will not be with me forever. You will be lost eternally if you are not born again. And think about that hits the ears, how it hits the ears of this self-righteous Pharisee. Me? I'm in. I've done everything Judaism has told me to do. I'm in, right? Not even close. 
He says, you will not enter into the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God here is a reference to that literal earthly kingdom where Christ will return and establish upon this earth one day. It is that millennial kingdom, that 1,000-year period of time promised in the Old Testament when Christ will return and establish his throne and reign upon this earth from Jerusalem on a literal throne of David, from a literal nation of Israel. That day is coming. And the Pharisees rightly believed in that day. They knew that that day was coming when there would be a resurrection and after that, Messiah would establish his kingdom. They understood that rightly, but what they got wrong was what qualified them for entrance into that kingdom. We'll be there. They believed their physical lineage would get them there. They believed their strict adherence to religious externals and the Mosaic law would get them into that kingdom. And they didn't understand that entrance into that physical kingdom was first precipitated by entrance into a spiritual kingdom. This is what Nicodemus didn't understand. And what I find so interesting here is Jesus didn't even answer his question. Notice. Nicodemus comes, and he says, you're doing these amazing signs, Jesus, and I want to know more about this. That's the question burning in the mind of Nicodemus. And Jesus responds in verse 3 and completely ignores the question. Doesn't even address the question. I like what one commentator says. He declined to carry on with courteous exchanges that get nowhere. There was absolutely no need for further discussion about the signs because Nicodemus needed a heart transplant. And Jesus goes right to that issue. He didn't address his question. He ignored them. He was not interested in discussing his signs, which resulted only in superficial faith. He went to the real issue. In fact, Christ can do this because he sees the heart. Look up in John chapter 2. Look at the end of chapter 2 because this is what he's already told us. He just performed this amazing sign of converting water into wine. And there's people all over the place following him and loving all the signs and loving all the miracles. Oh, let's follow Jesus. He does great and wonderful signs. Let's follow him. Verse 23 of chapter 2. Now when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover during the feast, many believed in his name, observing his signs, which he was doing. But Jesus, on his part, was not entrusting himself to them because he knew all men and because he did not need anyone to testify concerning himself because he himself knew what was in man. So Jesus, with his X-ray supernatural vision, looks into the heart of Nicodemus and sees death. Spiritual death. Oh, he's alive, very much alive physically, very much walking around, very much engaged in his religiosity. He's alive physically, but Christ penetrates that thin veneer of religiosity and says, dead spiritually. He says, Nicodemus, you need a new birth. You need a spiritual transformation. You need eternal life imparted to you by God himself from the outside. You can't work this up on the inside. It's got to be imparted to you from the outside. God has to be the one who will completely transform your heart and impart this new spiritual life to you supernaturally. That's the new birth. That's what Nicodemus needed. That's what... 
the people being baptized needed. And that's what you need. I was studying this week and thinking about this concept of the new birth. It's pretty unsettling. It's pretty troubling when you think about this. It's pretty disconcerting and alarming to us when, when we really think about this doctrine. And I, and I came up with a couple reasons why it's unsettling to most of us. Let me just list these for you. They're not in the outlines. Let me just list these first. It's unsettling to us because it confronts our hopeless spiritual condition. It confronts us in our hopeless spiritual condition. The, the, the new birth reveals the fact that we need some sort of transformation some change. It reveals the fact that we really are spiritually dead. We are rebellious. We are guilty before God, having broken His law. We are hopelessly unresponsive. We are unable to respond to God's offer of salvation. None of us, including the most religious man who's walked this earth, earth, Nicodemus, perhaps, We don't like to hear this assessment of ourselves. We don't like to admit that this is our true condition. None of us. And maybe right now, maybe you're grating in your heart against this. I'm not that bad. I'm a pretty good person. I do nice things. I go to church. I'm kind to people. I'm not that bad off, am I? It's exactly what Nicodemus said. Christ, with his supernatural vision, exposes what's really going on in his heart. And that's exactly why this is an unsettling doctrine, because it exposes our helplessness in sin. That's exactly what it's designed to do. The only way for you and I to get to God is to be born again. And it's designed to reveal to us our absolute and utter helplessness in sin. So the point that if you're not born again, then you cannot see God. Just listen to this list. Apart from the new birth, we are dead in trespasses and sins and our children of wrath. Apart from the new birth, we love darkness and hate the light. Apart from the new birth, our hearts are hard like stone. Apart from the new birth, we're unable to submit to God or please God. Apart from the new birth, we're unable to accept the gospel. Apart from the new birth, we're unable to come to Christ or embrace Him as Lord. Apart from the new birth, we're slaves to sin. And apart from the new birth, we are slaves of Satan. It's pretty unsettling. It's designed to reveal our helplessness in sin. There's a second reason why I think this is very unsettling. It's this. (laughs) We can do nothing to change it. We can do absolutely nothing to change this. Your your problem and my problem here is we can't fix this problem. We, We need to be born again. We need to be brought into a new relationship with God. There needs to be this spiritual rebirth. And we can't do anything to fix it. Isn't that the point of the term new birth? God is the one who has to do this. 
We can't do this to ourselves. We can't make this happen by ourselves. We cannot initiate this on our own. It has to be God doing this work, that this has to be something done to us, not something done by us. This is the doctrine of regeneration. God is the one who has to bring spiritual life where there is only spiritual death. God is the initiator. God is the one who starts this. God is the one who who must accomplish this work in us. And until that happens, nothing will happen to us spiritually. It's unsettling. Let me give you a theological term. This is known as monergistic regeneration. Try that at lunch today. Monergistic regeneration. It's not synergistic. You know what a synergistic action is? Synergism is something where you engage in something together, where you actually cooperate with someone. You, you do something together. If you were going to help me move this pulpit off the stage and I asked for your help, we would do this together and I would give you the heavy side and I would take the light side and we'd get this thing off and we'd move it away. And that, that's a synergistic kind of reaction, relationship. That's not regeneration. It's monergistic. One-sided One party involved in causing the new birth, God alone. And that's exactly why Jesus chooses this analogy of the new birth. Let's just face the reality. You didn't decide to come into existence one day and cause yourself to be born again. I'm sorry, to be born physically. You didn't think about someday, well, I'm going to bring myself into being and I'm going to cause myself to be born physically. No matter what you tell me, I know that that's not how it happened. In fact, a few babies that I've heard of being born were screaming and really didn't like the idea at all. You can't think yourself into existence. You can't think yourself into being born physically. It's Christ's point. You can't cause yourself to be born spiritually. You can't do anything to make yourself come alive. No unbeliever can affect their new, their, their new birth. No one can play an active role in doing this. It is entirely and solely a work of God. Say, Todd, how how do you know this? Well, let me give you a few other passages in Scripture that tell us exactly this. John chapter 1. In fact, why don't you just look at it with me? You're just there pretty close. Turn back two chapters. John chapter 1, verses 12 and 13 tell us exactly this reality. Look at John chapter 1, verse 12. It says, as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God, even to those who believe in his name. Okay. So I can become a child of God if I believe in his name. Okay, that sounds like I have a part to play in this, right? And you do. However, listen carefully to the rest of the verse. Who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. You're born of God. He makes you his child. 1 Peter 1, verse 3. Go back to John chapter 3. Listen to 1 Peter 1, verse 3. I just read it this morning. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his great mercy has caused us to be born again. Who caused us to be born again? Not you. God did. 
Titus 3, verses 4 and 5, when the kindness of God, our Savior, and His love for mankind appeared, He saved us, not on the basis of deeds which we've done in righteousness, but according to His mercy, by the washing of regeneration. Who washed you with regeneration? God did. God caused that. So what I want you to realize is the utter unsettling nature of the new birth. We're dead. We need new life. We need spiritual transformation. And yet we can do nothing about it. Nicodemus says, Jesus says to Nicodemus, you have a serious problem. And you can't fix it. Number two, this is the great need, the need for the spiritual birth, for the new birth. Number two, I told you there was two points. Number two is this, the means of the new birth. The means of the new birth. You say, if there's nothing I can do about it, then then how does this happen? How does God bring about this new birth? Well, Jesus is going to tell us. Look at verse 4. Nicodemus said to him, how can a man be born when he is old? He cannot enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born, can he? Nicodemus, being one of the smartest men in Israel, is not entirely dumb. He doesn't really truly understand it, but at the same time, he gets kind of what Jesus is saying. How can a man be born when he's old? He cannot enter a second time into his mother's womb, can he? He's smart enough to know that no one can enter back into his mother's womb. That's obvious. And yet, Nicodemus understands there's something more that Jesus is saying here, and he he probably knows that this analogy of being born again means that he can't contribute anything to his new birth, and he can't cause anything to happen in his own life. And that's exactly what Jesus wanted him to know. He can't do anything. So, Jesus goes on to explain what this means. Look at verse 5. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless as one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter into the kingdom of God. Now, Jesus begins to explain for us how this new birth takes place. Now, I want you to pay attention here because this is absolutely tremendous. If you're here today and you know Christ as your Lord and Savior, there has been an incredible internal transformation wrought in your heart by the Spirit of God, through God the Father, and I, I, I want you to grasp what's taken place. In fact, let me say it this way. If you're here today and you know the Lord Jesus Christ, it's not because you just made a good decision. The eight people being baptized here in just a moment are not going to be in those public waters of baptism saying they made a great decision. You're here today and you know Christ because God has done an amazing work in your heart supernaturally. And Jesus explains this. He says you need to be born of water and the Spirit. Now he begins to explain for us how this is going to happen and how this is going to work. So here's the question. What does he mean when he says you're born of water and the Spirit? What does that mean? Some people think that means baptism. The water here is the waters of baptism. There are some who teach that you are actually converted through your baptism, saved through your baptism, that somehow baptism causes you to be, be born again. That's not the case at all. That is not at all what Jesus is saying. You don't get saved through your baptism. Have I said that enough today? These are not the waters of baptism. So what does it mean? What is water 
and the spirit meet. You need to hold your finger here and go back to Ezekiel chapter 36. Because I have absolutely no doubt that Jesus, when he says you must be born of water and the spirit, has in his mind Ezekiel chapter 36. And I have no doubt that Nicodemus, when he hears these words, would have clearly thought of Ezekiel chapter 36. Ezekiel chapter 36 is a statement of the new covenant. And I want you to notice verses 24 to 27. These are God's words through Ezekiel to his people in Old Testament Israel. They're in exile in Babylon. They've been brought into captivity, and they have felt like God has abandoned them, and God is going to promise them here. He's not abandoned them. He's actually going to cause them to be born again someday as a nation, individually and as a nation, and he explains how that's going to take place. Look at verse 24. He says, I will take you from the nations, gather you from all the lands, and bring you into your own land. Then I will sprinkle what? clean water on you, and you will be clean. By the way, that's not a reference to baptism. Some people have used that as an example of a, a proof that you can sprinkle people. That's not exactly what it's saying at all. There's no baptism in here, no, no, no water baptism at all in here. But he says, I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you will be clean. I will cleanse you from all your filthiness and from your idols. Moreover, I will give you a new heart, and I will put a new spirit within you, and I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh, and I will give you a heart of flesh, and I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and you will be careful to observe my ordinances. What did Jesus say back in John 3? You need to be cleansed by water and the spirit. It's exactly what God says here in Ezekiel chapter 24, or 36, verse 24 and verse 27. Look what he says. Uh, 25 and 27, sorry. He says, I will sprinkle clean water on you in verse 25. That is a reference to supernatural cleansing, forgiveness, God giving you complete and utter cleansing from your sin. That's what verse 25 means, the clean water. Then verse 27, he says, I will put my spirit within you. God promises to plant the spirit of God in the hearts of his people, giving them the spirit of God within them. Now, who is this written to in Ezekiel chapter 36? Israel. That's why we believe Israel still has a future in God's economy. That's why we have no doubt that there will be a future millennial kingdom when Israel is restored as a nation. That's why we're dispensational in our end times here at Maranatha Bible Church. We hands down believe that there is a future for the nation of Israel. God promises it when he cleanses them from their sin and he gives them his spirit. Now look at verse 26. How is that going to take place? It's going to take place when God gives them a new heart and puts a new spirit within them. When he removes the heart of stone from their flesh and gives them a heart of flesh. This is exactly what needs to happen. The heart of stone that's hard and cold and dead needs to be replaced with a heart that is warm and soft and tender and responsive to the word of God. There must be this supernatural removal of a dead heart and in its place be given a new heart that's alive and can receive the spirit of God. And by the way, notice who does this. L look at verses 24 to 27 again. And I want you to notice six I will statements. 
For I will take you from the nations and gather you from all the lands and bring you into your own land. Verse 25, and I will sprinkle clean water on you and you will be clean. And I will cleanse you from all your filthiness and your idols. Moreover, I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you. Who's doing this? God and God alone. Monergistic regeneration. That's the new covenant promise. That God is going to grant a completely new heart in his people. And Jesus, go back to John chapter 3. Jesus draws on this truth in John chapter 3 when he speaks to Nicodemus and he says to him, you must be born again and it must take place by water and the spirit. In other words, you must be cleansed internally. You must be washed from your sin and the spirit of God must be put in you so that you can come alive. Look at John chapter 3 again, verse 6. Why is this necessary? Why is this no necessary? Why is it necessary? Because verse 6 says, that which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the spirit is spirit. There's a principle here. Like begets like. Animals produce animals. Plants produce plants. Insects produce insects. See a bumblebee produce a giraffe? Doesn't happen. Have you ever seen a dead, spiritually dead person give birth or life to someone who's dead? It's not possible. Flesh produces flesh. Spiritually dead humans can only produce more spiritually dead humans. So, how does someone who's dead spiritually come alive. Verse 6 tells us that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. The Spirit of God must do a work in the hearts of people to give them life. You can't do it yourself. You can't cause yourself to be born again. Only the person who's born of the Spirit is alive and comes alive through the supernatural work of the Holy Spirit. Verse 7, Jesus says, do not be amazed that I said to you, you must be born, a bit, born again. Don't be surprised at this. This is the way it works. It's a spiritual principle. Flesh gives, gives, life to, gives birth to flesh. Spirit gives birth to spirit. You see, how does this happen? Look at verse 8. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear the sound of it, but do not know where it comes from and where it is going. So is everyone who is born of the Spirit. An illustration. Jesus uses the wind as an illustration. You ever seen the wind? You ever seen the wind? You've heard it. You've seen the effects of it, but you've never seen it. So is the Spirit of God. You cannot see Him, He is invisible. He is not controlled, much like the wind is not controlled, and he goes to whomever he wishes. According to God's sovereign plans and purposes in election, according to God's choice, the Spirit of God goes and regenerates those whom he desires. That's why we love the doctrine of sovereign grace. 
Now here's the question. How does he do this? Does he just zap you? Lightning bolt out of heaven, suddenly you're now born again. Is that how it works? Does he just wave his magic Holy Spirit wand over you and suddenly this weird thing happens and is that how it works? Here's how it works. The Holy Spirit supernaturally gives you spiritual life by uniting you to Christ through the preaching of the Word of God so that faith results. That's how it works. You're dead spiritually. You need new life. The Holy Spirit comes by the power of God and grants you new life, alivens you, awakens you, opens your eyes to see the glory of God in the face of Christ. You begin to to come alive spiritually. You hear the word of God. You hear the gospel preached. Suddenly it makes sense in a way that never made sense before. The Spirit of God takes the word of God and applies it to your heart, and you are born again as you respond in faith. 1 Peter 1, verse 23 says, You've been born again, not of seed which is perishable, but imperishable. That is through the living and enduring word of God. You're born again through the word. You're not zapped. Spirit begins to work in your heart. He begins to draw you to himself. He begins to open your eyes. He begins to move in your heart that's been dead and cold. And suddenly the words that you've heard preached that you never made sense before now suddenly become alive to you. You understand the gospel. You see Christ in all of his glory. And suddenly your response is faith. So listen. Faith is the evidence of the new birth, not the cause of it. Faith is the evidence of the new birth, not the cause of it. In other words, we could say it another way. We don't believe in order to be born again. We're born again so that we can believe. And that's completely opposite from what most people think. Most Christians think that they decided to follow Jesus, threw a log in the fire, Walked an aisle, prayed a prayer, had an emotional experience, raised their hand, filled out a card, asked Jesus in their heart when they were six. And then you're born again. That's not how it works. Not at all. You're born again by the power of God in his word through the spirit and the evidence of that new birth is faith. Why is this important to understand? Because only when you understand salvation that way does God get the glory he deserves. As long as you think that your faith unlocked your salvation and you did your part and you made a right decision, you pat yourself on the back and think, man, I'm really grateful I made the right choice in receiving Jesus. God does not get the glory he deserves. It's only when you understand the new birth in this context. And it's all of God. And he did all of the work and he initiated it. Only then does he get the glory he deserves. And only then do we treasure Christ like he deserves to be treasured. 
So what does this have to do with baptism? These eight people you're going to hear from in just a moment have been cleansed, made alive by the Spirit of God, forgiven, granted supernatural life, made alive by the sovereign grace of God. Those hard, cold, stony hearts have been removed. God has softened them through his word and through his spirit. They've been brought from spiritual life to spiritual death. They've come to a point of belief in the Lord Jesus Christ, which manifests the fact that they have been born again. And God gets all the glory. And so in just a moment, you're going to hear eight trophies of grace. Eight people who have received this new birth, who are wanting to be obedient to the command of baptism and publicly give God the glory for his sovereign, merciful, and undeserved kindness. Beloved, this is the miracle of the new birth. And we want you to be encouraged and blessed as we hear them give their testimonies and be obedient to the waters of baptism. Would you pray with me? Lord God, these are marvelous truths, incredible, mind-bending, humbling, spiritual realities that make us understand our salvation is entirely and totally dependent upon you. Even our faith with which we've believed in you, even the repentance with which we've expressed repentance over our sin, even that is from you. And so, Lord, our great confidence is in the fact that you've done this work. You've given us a new heart. You've transformed us. You've alivened us. You've given us your spirit. You've made us alive. And we pray now for these eight people who are going to publicly testify to this. Strengthen them, give them opportunity and boldness to publicly profess your great grace in their lives. We pray these things in your name. Amen. You've been listening to a sermon by Pastor Todd Dykstra, teaching pastor of Maranatha Bible Church in Comstock Park, Michigan, where we exist to display God's glory, declare God's truth, delight in God's Son, and disciple God's people. No part of this digital file may be reproduced or distributed without prior written consent. For permission, go to mbcmi.org.